0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything, has its own history, like spades, snowmen and anthills. <laughs> oh,
1: anthills, I think we should definitely do that, yes. or we could do tees, please and louise. <laughs> tees... Meaning the leaf-based drink, sleaze and the sneeze. I think we should definitely do sneezing, Sam. However, that is to digress monstrously as always because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them explaining very carefully how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of laughter is in fact all about the Reformation, class differences, foreigners, poverty, politeness, awkwardness, the Tudor court, madness, and, would you believe, breaking wind in front of <laughs> Queen Elizabeth? Or did you know that the history of teeth
0: is in fact all about Viking society? Mm, and the French Revolution, we know about that as well, don't we? Of course, yeah. of course, yes. Um, the, the man not sitting opposite me uh, because we are social distancing, let me just say that if he were... A birdie historian, not not a historian made of birds, which would be weird but a but a bird who was a historian, he would no doubt be an owl he 'd be able to peer forward into the present and the future, but also one hundred and eighty degrees in the other direction, deep into the past. He is Professor extraordinaire of early modern british history at plymouth university it 's Professor james daybell hi james hello sam i 'm still loving the effort that you 're putting into these introductions,
1: uh, and i feel you know, I feel just uh, Not your equal in them. However, the man not sitting opposite me, because we are social distancing in these grim, grim days of lockdown three in the United Kingdom. Well, let's just say if he were a bird, a bird, not a historian, not a historian bird, but a bird, he'd only be that amazing liar bird that we've all seen on the David Attenborough uh, documentaries. That amazing bird that sounds like a camera and can whir and make all sorts of noises. So skillful is his uh, history making. Yes, you've guessed it. He's forcing this here. It's the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr. Sam Willis. Have you seen that documentary of the liar bird? No. Oh, it's the most extraordinary bird. It's sort of all colourful and puffed up. And then they had a camera crew in front of it. And then. Their cameraman was doing a sort of whirring with his lens and then a, a click. And then the bird could precisely mimic back the sound of the camera. So it was a... mm. I mean, incredible.
0: So you are, in fact, a... You're, in fact, a lyrebird. Ah. Well, everyone, I'm delighted with that. And if you haven't worked it out, we are doing the history of birds today. Um, which is something we wrote about a bit in our Viking book, and I've come to—I keep coming back to the history of birds. I've I definitely wrote something recently on the history of people analysing birdsong, um, and that appeared in one of our podcasts, but I can't remember which one. Uh, but it was absolutely fascinating seeing all the different ways that birdsong was notated over time. Anyway, here we are—we've got a, a bit of time to sit back and enjoy the history of birds. So, James, what are the many, many, many ways we can think about the history of birds? Goodness me! Well, we can think about the
1: we can think about the study of birds. We can think about the ways in which uh, ornithologists uh, have studied birds. We can think about ornithology as a as an area uh, in itself. We can think about the cultural meanings of birds, the uses of birds, birds uh, for foodstuffs. Uh, so we can appropriate it from all those kinds of things. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Viking birds uh, and their sort of various sort of representations of information gatherers and, it's you know, them being part of the diet of the Vikings. But then also I want to talk quite a lot about different uses of birds, uh, birds and warfare, birds and, and secret messages. We talked the other day in our podcast about hacking, about the Enigma machine um during the second world war and i want to talk a little bit about about carrier pigeons hmm. so there's a sort of little little sort of little foretaste of what 's to come where how do you
0: think about birds well i was I, I was going to plunge back into into this fascinating thing about people annotating bird song because I realized how similar it was to people jotting down morse code. It was wonderful, but I thought i wouldn't do that because i've done it before in one of our previous podcasts, and then I was doing a bit of research recently i've been doing this looking at interesting artifacts around museums in the country and I found myself spending a bit of time looking at the artefacts relating to the Battle of Waterloo at the National Army Museum and they're amazing the things they've got there relating to the battle. Interestingly so much more stuff than they have uh, that survives relating to the Battle of Trafalgar. So Trauga was at sea, and it was ten years before. But with the Battle of Waterloo, there really is an enormous amount of material and so much wonderful clothing, which is what really, really caught my eye, and particularly, James, the hats. And the first one that caught my eye was a bear skin. Ooh, yes. Not a, not a bird, but it was a bear skin. It was a big woolly hat, and I thought that was rather splendid. Uh, and then um, I looked at some of the... They've got some officers' helmets surviving, and they are distinguished by the most extraordinary um, attachments from bits of animal. Is the only way I can describe it. Um, plumes and horses, tails, all sorts of wonderful things. They are really, really magnificent and they would have looked extraordinary. Um, so I decided to, to find out what on earth was going on because I, it made me wonder immediately what species of animal was attached to this um, this helmet. And I've found that there's actually a wonderful history in um, the, the plumage industry. So what's going on here? I mean, w- what animals here? Um, obviously, it, very, it was clear very quickly that, that birds' feathers, plumes, were was so important to the hat industry of the 19th century. And... As I looked into it, it became a particularly fascinating period um, after the Battle of Waterloo. So in the 1850s, and what you've got then is a period of economic prosperity. You've got a growing middle class. They've got more money. They've got as uh, more trade going on. There's more access to um, to luxuries, and they can suddenly get hold of really magnificent non-essentials, things which have been made fashionable over the previous generations by elites. And in terms of hats, also particularly by military people, Uh, men would uh, decorate uh, hats like fedoras. Think about America primarily at the moment with a with a feather trim. But women primarily, they decorated their hats um, with With things called egrets, which are sprays of a breeding plumage taken from a variety of birds, and um, it's fascinating how widespread this came and how much of an impact it had on on birds. And what I came across was information on how it had an impact on native birds of America. Some sixty-four different species were all hunted for their plumage. Primarily, the great egret. Was favoured, but also the snowy egret. Um, The birds like these, which have extravagant, bold breeding plumage, used as sexual advertisements to attract their mates. Um, Now, the egret I mentioned there—it became so popular that the egret was actually adopted ultimately as the symbol of the bird preservation movement. But here are some figures from. just talking about the impact of this hunting of plumage from the mid-1850s up to 1900. Um, These figures come from one source alone, just one, and it's an auction in London, London Commercial Sales Room, during 1902. They sold, get this, 1,608 packages of herons plumes. Yeah, it's 1,608, doesn't sound... That's a lot. It does sound a lot, but now check this out. Each package weighed 30 ounces which makes it a total of 48,240 ounces. Someone's worked out that it requires four birds to make one ounce of plumes. That means, James, that those 1,608 packages meant that 192,960 herons had to be killed. And from that, two to three times that number of young and eggs destroyed. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Fascinating. And interestingly as well, the cost of this. So in 1903, the price of plumes offered to hunters to buy them off the hunters, it's $32 an ounce, which means nothing until you put it into context and you realise it is twice their weight in gold. How about that? That's a serious fact. Now, um there was a big movement to stop it preservationists they disseminate their information all sorts of periodicals if you've got any time go and look at bird law bird law magazine on archive.org um they're all there to study and it's it's fascinating there are um there's the American Ornithologists Union the Audubon Society particularly offer public lectures and that's all to do with public education one of the titles was woman as bird enemy I'd have very much enjoyed going to that lecture, James. Uh, but here is the, the killer thing. This is brilliant. So there's a guy called Frank Chapman who gets a bit cross about all of this in the 1880s. And he is the American Museum of Natural History's ornithologist. So he's minding his own business and he's in the middle of Manhattan and it's in 1886 and he decides to go for a walk. And then he, what he does is he writes down... All of the species of birds whose feathers he can see in people's hats. And he does this twice on two walks around Manhattan in 1886. And uh, the list still survives. survives. It's really brilliant. So, grebes. He's seen seven hats with grebe plumage. Green-backed heron, one Virginia Rail, one. Greater Yellow Legs, one. Sandling, five. Laughing Gull, one. Common Turn, 21. Black Turn, one. Ruffed Grouse, two. Greater Prairie Chicken, one. Northern Bobwhite, 16. California Quail, two. Mourning Dove, one. Northern Saw-It Owl, one. Northern Flicker, 21. Red-Headed Woodpecker, two. Piloted Woodpecker, one. Eastern Kingbird, one. Scissor-Tailed flycatcher. Catcher, one, tree swallow one, Blue Jay, five. Eastern Bluebird, three. American Robin, four. Northern Shrike, one. Brown Thrasher, one. Bohemian Waxwing, one. Cedar Waxwing, 23. Blackburnian Warbler, one. Blackpole Warbler, three. Wilson's Warbler, three. Tree Sparrow, two. White-throated Sparrow, one. Snow Bunting, 15. Bobolink one. Meadowlarks, two. Common Grackle, five. Northern Oriole, nine. Scarlet Tanager, three and the pine grow beak one wow how about that james and it that's a lot of bird watching do you know what that is so it's such an extraordinary variety of birds who have been hunted and killed for their plumes so it gives you just a sense i think of the scale of the problem that um, everyone was facing uh, at the turn of the century, turn of the 19th into the 20th century. But it also gives you, uh, I think, a, a very clear idea of just how colourful, okay, it's not great that they came from these endangered birds, but just how colourful the clothing was on a little walk around Manhattan in 1886.
1: Oh, what a lovely story, Sam. I love that. Thank you. But the, I, I too was prompted by uh, museums. Uh, Online museums, and I think this is one of the things that people have been doing over lockdown since COVID-19 for a long, long time now, as museums have had to all close their doors, particularly local museums where their volunteers Um, tend to be the more vulnerable in society and haven't been able to go in there and staff the museums for obvious reasons. But what this has done is it has driven museums to want to put all their exhibitions and their objects and everything all online. So one of the things that you should all do during lockdown is go and visit museums around the world. And there are some brilliant museums. And one of the ones that I was looking at this week was the Museum of Science and Industry? As I was doing a little bit of research for this little episode on birds, and the most extraordinary artifact caught my eye. And get this, Sam it is a canary resuscitator. <laughs> Um, There's been a competition between museums during lockdown to showcase their weirdest objects. And frankly, this one must be up there. And it starts in order to give some context. Of course, what this is all about is about canaries down mines, because canaries were used by miners to sense carbon monoxide. And this was something uh, that was credited to John Scott Haldane, Uh, and this is the end of the 19th century. Um, And basically, he thought that they were a really good um, species uh, to test this out because they were more sensitive to the colourless, odourless carbon monoxide and other poisonous gases than were humans, which basically meant that if the animal became ill or the animal died, It would give enough time for the miners to evacuate, to get out of there. Now, what this connects to then is this canary resuscitator machine. And I'll I'll describe this to you and we'll put this up on our website so that you can follow it. But imagine a large metal box uh, with a window on each side and then a round opening rather like the opening for a diver's helmet. And then there is a rubber tube coming out of the bottom of it, uh, and it's connected to a large black canister on the top. Now, this device would be used to actually keep the canary in. And what would happen is you would keep the circular door open, uh, and there was a little grill to stop the canary escaping. And you'd carry this down the mine with you. And when the canary showed signs of carbon monoxide poisoning, uh, so, I mean, I don't know whether it would sort of go, uh, sort of, and go slightly pale. And sort of, I mean, you obviously know what would happen. It would, you know, it would, it would start sort of, you know, swooning around. At that point, um, when it showed signs of carbon monoxide poisoning, the door would be closed. The valve opened to the gas canister on the top, which would allow... Oxygen from the tank at the top to come down and be released and revive the canary. And this would allow the miners to evacuate the area that was in danger. Now, the brilliant thing about this is because when I learnt about canaries down mines, uh, when I was at school learning about the Industrial Revolution, uh, and the mining that went on, I just thought that these canaries died, uh, but in actual fact, what's quite good is that there was a contraption uh that actually revived them uh so this is this was this was really good this was actually very pleasing and Would you believe that this tradition of carrying uh canaries down the mines actually dates back to the eighties? um and they the mining industry still used uh canaries as part of a detection system for carbon monoxide poisoning and also other gases and because they felt that actually it was so ingrained in culture uh of the miners the miners you know actually were quite emotionally attached to these birds and would whistle to them and coax them as they were working with them. In A BBC uh, report from the 80s uh, describes the way in which miners would treat them as pets. And it wasn't until 1986 that canaries are no longer used. Um, and what they...
2: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: Introduce, at this point, is an electronic device called an electronic nose, which is a detector, a digital reading that could replace this uh, use of canaries and actually spot uh, the poisonous gas. But in fact, the um, the last canary was not in 1986. That was when this machine was introduced, the last canary was retired in 1999, according to an article uh, in The Independent. But this isn't where the story ends, because there is also a history of canaries being used during World War One. And I was leafing around the internet, uh, looking for recent research, and I chanced on a blog by a brilliant team uh, who are running uh, an Arts and Humanities Research Council project called Pets and Family Life. And I chanced upon uh, a really interesting blog entry uh, by a scholar called L. Larson uh, that was written uh, on the 2nd of May, uh, 2018. And she talks about the way in which canaries were used uh, in the First World War trenches and that they were, in some ways, a hero uh, not only were they used by the Mines Committee to sort of go out and when they're, when they're digging the test tunnels below the trenches, um, they're used to test for carbon monoxide. Again, these canaries become objects of affection for the soldiers who were fighting during the war because they're away from their home life where they might have had pets, they might have had, you know, pet birds, Um and that actually these canaries in the trenches were part of a domestic life for them. Um, and, you know, it was a connection back to their working class homes back in Blighty. And there's a it, the blog quotes a letter published in the Daily Mail from one rifleman uh, who wrote to a friend that our only companion is a little canary we rescued from a deserted house. And it goes on, the little bird would get so black with smoke that it's a job to distinguish it from a sparrow, he wrote. So there we are. Hmm. Um, All that from uh, the canary resuscitator into... Nineteenth and twentieth-century mining, and then into the First World War and the trenches, and canaries as pets. Lovely. How about that for a little sort of ramble around the past, Sam?
0: I like the uh, the idea of them uh, being pets, and 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 um, the the miners having a close relationship with the birds. I yeah, think I think that's, that's very. I think that's very nice. It's a great, human too. touch to yeah. the to the trenches. James, it was interesting. You were saying you should be checking out what's happening in museums. I've been doing the same thing, and always I like to. Uh, just to see what's happening at the uh, local museum in Exeter, the Royal Albert Memorial Museum. And they've got some wonderful stuff. And one of the things that they have is a collection of taxidermy of extinct or endangered birds. And I've known about this. I've uh, wandered around those galleries and admired them many, many times. But I've never actually tried to sort of engage historically with them. And it turns out that, that it's a fascinating source. I'm, I, I would really like to do a PhD on uh, on the taxidermy of birds, James. I think it's brilliant, just the, the different things you can do. So they have, for example, and I was going to read out some of the, the what some of the information they had about these birds online, and um, have a think about it, uh, and tell me why you think they're interesting. <clears throat> This is a challenge for all of our listeners, rather than particularly for you, Oh, I know the exact room you're talking about, ah, Sam. It's a brilliant to... room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. OK. Um, so um, we have the uh, kakapo. It's a large, nocturnal and flightless parrot, which is found only in New Zealand. It is critically endangered. It looks quite comical, this bird. Uh, I'm rather fond of it already. The Alagoas Curaçao. This specimen came to the museum as an exchange from the Natural History Museum London in 1984. The Alagoas curacao is now extinct in the wild. The red-fronted parakeet. The red-fronted parakeet is known by the Maori name Karkakariki. It is currently extinct on the main islands of New Zealand but can be found on smaller islands such as Stewart Island. This specimen was possibly collected by Miss P. Allen on the South Island, donated to the Royal Albert Memorial Museum in 1958, and was originally one of 19 birds mounted in a case the Carolina parakeet. Carolina parakeet was once found in much of the southeastern USA and had the most northerly range of all the species of parrot. It often lived in large groups in cypress and sycamore trees along rivers and swamps. In the early 1800s, it was still a common bird, but in 1832, John James Audubon, an accomplished naturalist and author, famous for his book The Birds of America, that is obviously the guy who founded the Audubon Society, James, that I was talking about when I was talking about hats. Anyway, he notes that it's numbers were starting to fall. Um, Blah, blah, blah. It carries on all about this. But the last specimens of this bird, the Carolina parakeet, were collected in Florida in 1904. The last captive bird died in the Cincinnati Zoo in 1918. Rumours of its survival in the wild continued to the 30s, but were unverified. Uh, the Eskimo curlew. Until the late 19th century, millions of birds migrated from North to South America each year, but increasing agriculture in the prairies and hunting led to a dramatic decline. So the Eskimo curlew is now critically endangered and may be extinct. This particular example has a label collected Le Chevalier, North America. Right, so from those labels, what's clear is that there is an interesting history of extinction of why Uh, why a bird may no longer be um, be around so much you can obviously get accounts of um, people traveling around America experiencing it um, from a time when the birds were in plenty but more importantly I think more interestingly they have histories as curated objects so they've got labels on them and you can be you can work carefully to reconstruct the life of that bird as an object and what really got me into this is this last one it is a male starfinch. This species is now critically endangered. In 1944, Miss Fox, a schoolmistress from Beckenham, donated 20 mounted birds from Australia and two from New Zealand to the museum. We do not know how she came by them. Their significance has recently been uncovered by Clemency Fisher from the National Museum of Liverpool. The Australian birds were collected by John Gilbert and John Murphy on the Queenstown leg of the Like Heart Expedition which ended at Port Essington in December 45, 1845. Most of the specimens are listed in Murphy's manuscript diary. So here we've got a bird which has got his own own history as a curated object. They know a bit more about where it's come from and how it ended up at the museum. So just to give you a sense of context of of where this bird has come from and how rare it is, the uh, Friedrich Leichhardt, so it's come from this expedition. He's a German explorer and naturalist. He's most famous for his exploration of northern and central Aust- Australia. He disappeared in 1848 um, when he set out um, to t- on, on an enormous journey. Um, the expedition was it consisted of Leichhardt, four Europeans, two Aboriginal guides, seven horses, 20 mules and 50 bullocks, and they all vanish. They completely disappear. Um, various... Um, uh, missions are sent out to try and find them. And interestingly, James, they find uh, evidence of them in terms of graffiti, trees scratched, marked with an L, um, in uh, various times. So they they actually managed to be able to recreate their journey through their graffiti. Nonetheless, they never actually find uh, any remains of them. The only sense of what happened survives in Aboriginal oral history, according to the Wallumbilla tribe. Um, the uh, Leichhardt and all of his companions were surrounded by a large group of aboriginals and uh, they were everyone was murdered anyway the this bird from this collection comes from the expedition before Leichhardt vanished okay with all, everything so this is his first expedition in uh, Australia northern Australia it's the successful one he travels an unbelievable distance in australia he goes from what is now brisbane all the way up to port essington in the northern territory it's like a tiny island at the very very top of the top pointy bit of australia on the right it's it's nearly 5000 kilometers overland and he's doing this in australia in 1845 but the key thing here is that he he's accompanied by a guy called john murphy and john murphy's fascinating he's born in in wales in Pembrokeshire in 1829, he leaves for Australia with his parents in 1841, and on board the ship going to Australia, he hears Leichhardt talking about his passion for exploration, his passion for animals in Central Australia, and he manages to join the expedition. And he spends uh, his time with Leichhardt. He collects he collects animals. Um, he makes wonderful notes about the animals. And the most important thing about all of this is he's 15. So it's not just and oh it's not just a bird it's a it's a bird that was collected by a child on one of um you know the the most remarkable expeditions in the whole of history and it's now there in the um Royal Albert Memorial Museum in Exeter so it's got a wonderful little story to it and it made me realize anyway that these taxidermied animals rather than just looking at it and going oh that's interesting that's what a kakapo looks like or that's what this looks like They matter because they've got their own history, which you can pick apart and um, get out of that a fascinating history, not only of how they were collected, when they were collected, but also of collecting and how that's changed over time. Mm. And also of the modern museum. Uh,
1: Because when the RAM was was bidding for its funding, uh, one of the cases that it put forward was that it wanted to keep... The Victorian core of the museum intact. I mean if you look at how a lot of modern museums are working they've got rid of all of those kinds of taxonomies of of different categories of animals or birds or shells or whatever it is. And the RAM, Royal Abbott Memorial Museum in Exeter, made a point about keeping it. And it's rather like the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford of its kind. So it's this sort of really sort of rambling curiosity museum. And these collections were given to the institution, on the proviso that they would be kept intact. So no, actually, it's part and parcel of the museum's duty to keep them there as well for posterity. And I remember when my, my kids were a lot younger, going along and spending countless Sunday mornings wandering around the rambling, wonderful collections at the Ram. Uh, and one of our favourite spots to stop Was the bird exhibit? It's tremendous. Uh, Any of you who are in the Southwest uh, at any time, stop off and have a look at this truly amazing. Uh, series of rooms.
0: yeah wonderful sam very good Uh, well guys i hope you've enjoyed this little introduction to our history of birds i promise you we're going to come back because as ever james and i have become so deep in our research that we've got more birdie stories to share with you Um, in the meantime do please follow us on social media for updates on everything we're doing i'm at dr sam willis and if you're interested in maritime and naval history do please check out the mariners mirror podcast that's my new podcast on the history of the sea And you can
1: follow me at James Daybell and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at UnexpectedPod. We are also on Instagram and Instagram quite regularly. We are also on Facebook, so come and friend us there. You can also find out everything that we've been up to since 2016 uh, on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. We're also doing a series on homeschooling for young historians. So if your parents or teachers... Check those out because hopefully they're being quite useful as everyone is homeschooling from home.
0: That's it, guys. Jerry out. We'll be back soon. Bye-bye. Take care, guys. Bye.